Ayushi Mona and you're listening to India Booked, a podcast where we lean into the idea of India through its literature and we speak to authors who bring this to life. Do you remember the city of your birth or do you remember a city that you've made your own? In this episode of India Booked, I talk to Shantini Das Gupta as we traverse memory, meaning, love and life. We understand Delhi through the lens of Shantini's book, House of Nails, and crib perhaps a little too much about why not enough books are written about Delhi. We also tap into our fascination with living in dual worlds and chat about how Draupadi and her character reflect in Shantini's work, Fire Girl. This episode is home, hearth, all things warm. Do tune in to learn more. Listen to this episode of India Booked to discover more about her work and her job as a creative non-fiction professor. Hello, I'm Ayushi Mona, your host on India Booked, a podcast where we dive into the multiple facets of India through the voice of our authors. Today, I am elated to have with me Shantani Das Gupta. Shantani has been an alumna of Stephens and Genium. She received her MFA in Creative Writing from the University of Idaho. She now teaches at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. She is the author of Fire Girl as well as the chapbook The House of Nails, Memories of a New Delhi Childhood. Her writing has appeared in over 50 literary journals and magazines including the Hindu, Sproul, Economic and Political Weekly, Chicago Quarterly Review, etc. Besides the US, Chantini has taught creative writing in India, Italy and Mexico. She's also the winner of the recently concluded season 3 of Write India. Welcome to the show, Shantini. We're so, so happy to have you here. Thank you. It's such a treat to talk to you. I also have to confess um, that usually, you know, when, when I'm preparing to interview someone, I, I typically read their writing, right? And, I, I, and it's very transactional uh, because I make notes and I think of what will I ask this person? How will it go? In your case, I read Fire Girl and I cried. <laughs> <laughs> So your writing had like an emotional impact on me. And then after 15 minutes, I was like, no, Ayushi, you have to do this. So you might as well now start reading everything else. So I went to the writing section of your blog and, and, um, and I read everything that was on it. Thank you. One of the things that, you know, we, we can start with probably is, is to begin at the beginning, right? Since you teach creative nonfiction and, and write about your life as well, um, I, I leave it to you to talk us through, uh, you know, how the House of Nails and, and memories of a New Delhi childhood seep into your writing. And the floor is yours. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for reading. Thank you for inviting me to be here. It's such a treat. Um, well, I didn't start off my writing career as a writer of creative nonfiction. When I decided to come to the U.S. for a degree in creative writing, I had applied for fiction because that was the genre I was most familiar with. I knew I was not meant to be a poet. That's not one of my skills. But in terms of prose, I thought fiction was where 
I um, uh, could do my best. And when I came here in 2006 for my MFA in creative writing, that's when I first heard and got introduced to what we call creative nonfiction here. And it's a term that's becoming more and more popular, I think, all over the world. So creative nonfiction, you are writing nonfiction. You are writing things that are truthful, that have actually happened. Of course, there is this sense that it is as truthful as you remember it. So nobody is going to say, Are, you wrote that you were wearing a red dress that day, but it was actually a pink dress. And this is the this is an inauthentic piece of writing. Not that. We know that you are writing from memory. So there will be lapses um, of uh, such nature. But the idea is that you are writing as truthfully as you remember an incident from your life. And you are trying to make meaning of it. You're trying to understand why it happened, why it has stayed with you for so long, why you need to tell the world about it. So my essay, Fire Girl, which then became the anchor essay of my book, comes from a series of, what should I say, indignities suffered on the roads of Delhi and in my personal encounters with several people in Delhi. And right from childhood, I have been fascinated with the story of Draupadi. And this is obviously not to me. There are many many young girls and women in India who are obsessed with Draupadi and for good reason. And creative nonfiction seemed like a good vehicle where I could marry my own life story and also bring in Draupadi's story and blend these things together and try to understand why these instances have stayed with me for so long and why I continue to be deeply impacted by them. I actually, uh, you know, while I was reading your book, and, and I think part of why it resonated so much was because I had a childhood in Delhi. And uh, I I remember everything from the era of those blue line buses to DTC buses and crash uh, driving and, and the exact indignities that you mentioned. Because being a woman, even if you've never seen each other, right? or only encountered each other for the purpose of this interview, the indignities that you face are so universal. Right. And they are such a factor of where you come from. So when you say speak about living in this tiny university town where you could sit at a bench in the evening and nobody would care, the universal experience wouldn't resonate with me. And and hence, I wanted to start our conversation with talking about the House of Nails. Because what about Delhi moved you so much? And what about the childhood experience and that city means so much to you? Right. I think we are who we are based on our childhood, right? And we are who we are based on the cities we grew up in, which is something you said yourself. And so no matter where I live in the world, I think Delhi will always be the reference point for me, the framework on which I base everything else, the the point of comparison, the sort of what I will compare every other city to, every other living experience to, I think. And um, the first home in Delhi that we, we lived in, my family and I, uh, I call it the House of Nails. You may already know it from my work, but this is just for um, everyone out there. That house had, I think, a million nails on its walls. 
And that's because the previous tenants had been, I think, obsessed with uh, wall art, paintings, photographs. I don't know what. I never saw <laughs> But they left a million nails in, in the walls. And so when we moved in, my parents were, I think, just berserk for the first few months. Like, how do we get rid of all these nails? And my, I remember my dad sort of trying to pull them out and ripping them off the walls and all, all the adventures surrounding it. I don't know how that left such a deep impact. I think it spoke a lot about my childhood in the sense, or anyone's, that it's going to be a blend of the hard and the soft. So when I think of the heart, I think of the nails, I think of the walls that they were ripped out from or planted in. And I think of the crumbly dust they left behind every time we pulled out a nail. So it seemed like the perfect metaphor for, well, for my life, but especially for my childhood, because it came with the hard and the soft. Um, I don't know if I'm answering your question correctly, but in terms of understanding what the House of Nails means to me, that's what I would say. And in terms of what Delhi means to me, I wasn't born in Delhi. I moved to Delhi when I was five because my dad had a new job. And I remember this was, it was 1985 and it was a huge culture shock for my parents because we were moving from Calcutta. And I think for people outside of India, it's very hard for them to imagine cities in India being so starkly different from one another. But as you know, cities in India are starkly different from one another, right? So for my parents, New Delhi was a massive culture shock in terms of this new language. They were never happy with the vegetables you would get in the market. They were never fresh enough. They were not happy with the fish we would get in the market because, of course, as Bengalis, as uh, being right from Calcutta, we were used to good fish. So I remember these unhappinesses of my parents and they stayed with me. And then when I came to the U.S., that same homesickness assailed me and something I had not understood as a child it resonated so much more. So therefore, combining these two homesicknesses and then telling my own story made a lot of sense to me. So now from the incredibly personal, right, I want to move into something that is absolutely objective and it's something I wondered. Last uh, couple of, I think a couple of months back, I started working, you know, on a listicle, which was about the best uh, books on Bombay. And, and of course, there was everything from, uh, you know, a Rohintan mystery to uh, Amitabh Mahale to um, behind, uh, to, you know, I mean, Gyan Prakash, there's so much literature on Bombay and, and everything from like a maximum city to, to something like a more personal experience. In commercial or popular fiction or nonfiction, I haven't really seen writers celebrate Delhi. You know, I would keep thinking to myself when I thought of, say, Delhi by Kushwan Singh. But then again, that, that the point of the book is really not the city, uh, but the particular relationship dynamic there uh, between this man um, and this eunuch. And what is it about the city that has not really lent itself um, to being romanced by the literary world? And And again, this is just an opinion. So I could be totally wrong. And I just probably haven't read enough books on Delhi. But, but recently, I find dozens of books on Mumbai and, and hardly anything on Delhi. Huh. Okay. Well, I think one of my favorite books on Delhi is The City of Jinns by William Dalrymple. And I remember reading it when I was maybe 13 or 14 for the first time. And it was a huge, it left a huge impact that 
Uh, I think that may have been the start of my love for creative nonfiction without knowing that this is creative nonfiction because the book is much about his experiences in Delhi and the people he meets and how he sort of sees Delhi through the eyes of this outsider who is also kind of an insider because he has traveled to many places in the world and therefore he's he's far more comfortable in a so-called foreign place than, you know, someone who is perhaps leaving home for the first time. So um, that's another book besides, of course, Kushwan Singh's that comes to mind. And then I'm also thinking of books that were written, um, and I'm blanking on the titles right now, but sort of uh, commemorating the the events and the people involved um, in uh, the mutiny of 1857. Um, then uh, I'm also thinking of a book by my uh, former professor, Dr. Upinder Singh, but that's probably from a more historic, archaeological point of view. So I think there are there are books on Delhi. Um, maybe I'm hmm. to answer your question, like why have people engaged with Delhi less? Is it too brash? Do you think is is Delhi not? Uh, but I don't think that's true. I think Delhi is so interesting, and Delhi is not one city, right? That Delhi is so many cities. There is such difference between North Delhi, South Delhi, even within South Delhi, there are, there is a great uh, deal of difference if you are living in Greta Kailash versus say if you're living in Chitrajan Park. So I think I have to think more about it. I don't know if I have one correct answer, but this as a Delhiite makes me unhappy that there are more books on Mumbai than there are books on Delhi. Very sad. I'll have to fix this. And actually, thank you for bringing up the uh, city of Jinn. I've read Nine Lives in White Mughals. I haven't read uh, City of Jinn. However, the lens is still, you know, very historical or mired in maybe, or maybe it makes space in some kind of political conversation, such as memoirs of powerful people, etc. I don't see too many people celebrating contemporary Delhi, especially. And, and that's strange because otherwise, Delhi is also full of, um, intellectual people and and readers and writers and journalists and academicians so it's not that the city's uh, intellectual circles aren't a bus but for some reason uh, i think a lot of writers have given love to mumbai in a particular way and i'm not even say mentioning cities like calcutta or the depiction of madras etc because i think calcutta has been blessed by the just the wondrous uh, types of different writers who've emerged from there. So, so it finds, you know, a, a beautiful space in literature. But but Delhi, I, I've always found it slightly underwhelming. I think we'll jump out of this into talking. I'm going to interrupt you for a minute. I'm wondering if you have felt that way because like me, this is also your primary city. So you want it to be represented in the best possible way by the most variety of voices. And perhaps the fact that it hasn't happened as yet is making you that much more like, come on, authors, do justice to my city. Perhaps I think you're right. It's probably just a, a reader's complaint, if I could, uh, you know, call it that. Of course, yeah. So I think uh, moving on to some aspects, you know, uh, you speak very fondly of, of your travel back home, whether it's the time spent with family or 
uh, the mangoes that you're eating, the explosion of languages, cultures. I I uh, thought that the the little piece that you did on uh, the soundtrack was Singham was a riot. <laughs> and bollywood and tina munim and you know these little glimpses of jhatkas and matkas and ghar ka khana uh, which really come through what are some of your favorite memories uh, of from your childhood that encompass these by far how much my parents indulged my love for reading that is the first and foremost fondest bestest memory uh when we came to came, when we came to new delhi as i said i was 5 and hindi was not a language i spoke or understood so my father he built us a tv i am sure he could have bought one but my dad is also an engineer and he loves building things and he loves creating things that involve technology and so on and so forth so uh my dad built us a tv he named it after my mother and the purpose of the tv was so that i could uh watch television shows etc in hindi and and get that you know um ease and comfort with hindi the other thing he did uh and this is important because uh back in 1985 there was only doordarshan unlike the explosion of television channels and programs right now there was only doordarshan and i think the entertaining programs used to be only on sundays sunday mornings a little bit for children and a, a movie a hindi movie on sunday evening that might be it and otherwise on a day the tv would come alive only after like 8 or 9 pm in the evening there was nothing else during the day except i think krishi darshan at 7 o'clock which if you were a kid who had no idea what krishi darshan was supposed to be about you probably wanted to just throw your tv off the window or something besides that the other thing that my parents did was they subscribed us to several hindi magazines for children like champak nandan so on so forth so i was reading in bangla because i had uh, i had studied just the letters before coming so i was familiar with the letters in bangla script and of course i was learning english in school so these three languages started entering my life uh, very intensely at about the same time and i was reading in all three and i was encouraged to read in all three and all these books were coming into our house all the time multiple newspapers in multiple languages so on and so forth and that remains my favorite memory of my childhood and uh during book fairs or during durga puja which was another time to buy lots of books my parents bought me sort of short stories from you know russia and ukraine it's these books were coming into india at that time very very often and because i grew up reading stories in multiple languages and about multiple places i think it just kind of made me far more tolerant and open minded right from the beginning and i feel that this is something parents should do everywhere uh my parents just did it instinctively without knowing that this is like good child psychology or anything but i think this is a good practice for maybe parents and children everywhere to just read stories of people who don't look like you who don't come from your cultural background and just know that you know everyone is full of grace and light and and at the same time they all have bad parts so that kind of encouragement of reading was wonderful and i saw my parents read a lot so children pick up what they see around them so because i saw my parents read 
very often that became like the most natural thing to do at home. So in agreement with this, I was fervently nodding my head along, though obviously you wouldn't <laughs> see. Um, is that this whole universal experience? And I think you know the the sort of subtitle to your book, right? That there's an in between as well, and as so many of these experiences are universal because. while you may have your own set of experiences but then you you read so many people's writing about urban poverty and violence alcoholism and you know that even if somebody is an other they've had their share of experiences and this empathy and reflection is is what really creates the universal experience and, and why reading is so important absolutely for me and i think this is a personal tidbit but the first book that i remember reading when i was little was a book called ukrainian folk tales mm. and uh, and it had been bought by my uh, cousin sister at a book fair and and she just left it around in the house and um, and i think till that time the none of these people in the family had realized that this child is now fully functional and able to read books on her own <laughs> and i book and i read it so for the longest time i my image or you know how i would name my dolls etc would be ivanho or i had these for instance i read this book where uh, inanimate things had life so you had to always respect them right and it was in in one of those ukrainian folk tales and when you mentioned for instance in your um essays that one of the things that culturally was left with you that if a book or a piece of uh, a, a you know paper or a pen fell down and goddess saraswati resides in it so you just always touch uh, it and you know ask for apology the principle was the same it's just the representation was different you uh, value in animate things and and to consider them worthy of respect i also found um what one uh, essay that i thought was very interesting uh, was this whole piece on the reptilian brain thank you actually found many pieces uh, fascinating so my problem is i don't know what to talk about <laughs> but it's always good to have this problem of plenty i i think what i'll do is instead of gushing i will pause and let you speak a bit about the reptilian brain sure so yeah that's another moment from my life that has definitely sort of stayed with me scarred me and um just in brief this is about the time i was 22 and had just started an internship and um no i was i think 20 i mean i was just 20 i had just graduated from college and uh i was on my way to my new internship when three men uh with three snakes accosted me and this happened in a very busy intersection of delhi and it's not an uncommon sight to see these men with snakes walk around extremely crowded touristy places to extort money from unsuspecting people or you know terrified people because obviously a man with a snake you are not you're not going to be automatically comfortable with that sight my fear of that moment of that encounter and how alone i felt surrounded by these men by these snakes some of which were literally kissing distance from my face and how alone i felt because we were surrounded by so many people mostly men because this was a morning office going crowd and even though of course we have so many women in the workforces the balance is still very much skewed 
And this was in 2000. And just the majority of men just being bystanders and just just looking and nobody sort of coming to offer help or intercede or anything when they can clearly see I'm in anguish until I did have sort of a knight in shining armor moment with a, with a person towards the end of the essay. And that was deeply helpful to me to recover um, from this experience. This experience, this overall, this morning stayed with me and I had to write about it to understand why it has still impacted me. And then I, when I started looking what happens to our brain when we are terrified. It was fascinating. And I have remained very interested in these aspects of science in terms of our brain cells, our memory cells, what we inherit. One of the things I find very interesting about our about brain science is that we inherit traumas from previous generations. So this terror of snakes, it may be something biological human beings have been sort of trained biologically to fear snakes because of just evolutionary reasons. But it also could be that maybe five generations ago, some great-great-grandmother had a terrifying experience with an actual snake and it remained, it became embedded in her DNA. And it's fascinating to me that I could have inherited it from her without ever having met her or heard the story directly from her. So this kind of research is of great interest to me, especially when you are writing about yourself, I always tell this to my students, it's important to not just tell your own story. If there is a way you can connect it with a larger thing, be it science, be it uh, philosophy, dance, food, art, theater, what have you, there is a way then for the reader to step out of your specific brain, take larger world and then go back into your brain so they are learning things both at the micro as well as macro level and there is this constant interweaving where you're also leaving the reader guessing like what happens next do we stay in this story do we do we have a segue and go somewhere else how do we come back into the story so it makes for a interesting reading experience for the reader and ultimately that's kind of we are in service of to write good stories to write well not just to sort of uh, make the writer in us happy, but also to to connect with the person who is reading the story. So that's what led to reptilian brain, and I'm I'm glad that it had a connection with you. Thank you. This whole play between the micro and macro, I think it was a moment where you've written that while you're done with this encounter and you're handing over your bus fare, you ask yourself, is there need to please in built-in women? Right. I I think it was that you know uh, because. Again, because it's resonance and that's what storytelling does, right? It makes you, oh, I knew this, but now now that it's been presented to me in this particular way, I've noticed things that I was seeing but was not really seeing. So I think that's what really happened. I think the, the piece around your grandmother um, is something that, that I think a lot of reviewers also uh, found very fascinating so i i see a lot of people um uh, who've uh, you know found that story fascinating because i think in today's context we always find it interesting that someone will say married off when they were 10 but but in those times it was their reality it would be as unusual as say somebody uh, being 
urban in in today's time and never having seen a McDonald's, right? It's just obvious that you would have at some point of time in your life. Right. And this par for the course. Another interesting piece was uh, obviously around the Durga piece and how you felt that, you know, you had to teach context and perspectives. Right, yeah. To your students. Yes. So how did this move change your relationship with religion? And was it difficult to write about religion? And how did um, an experience of, say, Pujo or or how you looked at Durga uh, changed between uh, Calcutta to Delhi, uh, you know? So going from a place where it was in the air, uh, literally, to a city where it was, you know, a sliver of reality during a week. To, you know, to a completely distant country where a student would say, oh, that's just weird. I don't have memories of Durga Puja when I was living in Calcutta because um, I was, you know, I was very young. So it did not really impact me. The things I missed most about Calcutta when we moved were my grandparents and my aunt and so on and so forth. So my association with Durga Puja was really my entire life in Delhi whenever Durga Puja would come around and that week of sort of immersion in great food, in hanging out with friends, in watching plays and uh, ballets and so on and so forth, such such wonderful memories of that time. And um, when I came to Idaho, it was, of course, expected that this would not be a big thing here. What I had not expected was that Idaho would make me a better Hindu which is odd because so many Americans go to India in search of spiritualism and religion and what have you. And I had come to this state, to this town of 25,000 people, and I had become more Hindu in the absence of Hinduism, just because my own curiosity and the questions I was getting from students kept encouraging me to research and read further and further. But I will never forget, and you know this moment because you've read the essay, but I'll never forget that moment in class when I showed the image of Durga for the first time and one of my students recoiled in horror, sort of her reaction that, who is she? Who is that? She looks terrifying. It was hard for me to not burst into tears and I was so surprised by my own intense reaction to this that, hello, I am an atheist. I am, you know, born and raised in sort of very cosmopolitan cities. I am not a religious person. What is even happening? Why am I sentimental about an image? But because she represents home, she represents India, people of India, lovely memories, all of those things. And so that reaction was so felt like such a volatile attack on who I was as a person. And since then, definitely, I I have learned to place everything in context that just because it looks terrifying it's not necessarily terrifying and this is obviously natural this is not my students fault per se but you know we don't fear necessarily what is obviously most familiar to us but you see the same thing from the gaze of an outsider and it makes no sense so for example with my students when i was teaching comparative religions i would do this exercise Because here, of course, Christmas is the biggest festival, biggest holiday, so on and so forth. They hang stockings, right, from the fireplace or on the mantelpiece, etc. And these stockings are oversized stockings and they fill it up with small, small gifts for each other and so on and so forth. 
And of course, there is this beautiful Christmas tree in the corner of the living room. I would ask my students that let's try and explain this scene to someone, maybe an alien from a different planet, maybe someone from a different country who has never heard of Christmas, who has never seen anything, has no context. And this person comes and what he or she they see is, okay, they are cutting off a tree. So it's a dead tree, no roots. They're bringing it inside the house. Okay, a dead tree inside the house. And then they are putting all kinds of glitzy things at its feet, all these weird boxes and misshapen lumps. And then they're decorating the dead tree and hanging up socks. Why are they doing these weird things? So the moment I would break it down like this, of course, my students would laugh because they have grown up with it. So it's the most normal, natural thing to them. But seeing it from a perspective that's not theirs was very helpful in sort of seeing that, oh, right, this would not make sense to anyone who's not from here. So we would do these exercises with like coffee shops here, Starbucks. My first time in Starbucks here was was terrifying, was nerve wracking because the barista, um, this is back in 2006, the first one of the first questions she asked after I gave my order of, I just want coffee. Uh, was, um, do you want any whip with that? And I had no idea that by whip, she meant whipped cream. I thought whip as in cream with which you meet people. So I was terrified that what kind of a world have I landed in where, I mean, from TV shows like Friends, it seems like getting coffee is the most natural thing in the world, but now they're going to whip me? What the heck? And okay, I'm a broke grad student, but I still have the $1, whatever I need for this uh, black coffee. So I think I stared at the barista in terror for 35 seconds or something. And she must have also stared at me like, okay, weirdo, why are you staring at me? And this is another thing I tell my students often that what is, again, normal to you entering a Starbucks, looking at the menu, knowing that I want this combination with that combination. For someone who is not from here, it's going to be perhaps shocking. So, and the same thing happens with me now. And I'm very sad about this, that this happens to me now when I go back to India and I see the price of things. I don't know if I can automatically afford it. So I have to convert it in my head into dollars to know if I can afford it. And this makes me incredibly sad because when I first came here, I would look at, you know, prices in dollars for everything. And I would, of course, convert in rupees to see if I can afford it in my wallet right now. You know, and now 14 years is, of course, a long time to, to live somewhere. And that's how long I've been here. So now when I go back and we are maybe, you know, at a restaurant or eating a pastry or something, and I will look at the price and I'm immediately in my, can I afford it? So, and 99% of the times I'm actually with friends or family members who will not let me spend because I'm this uh, uh, guest that they are pampering, which I'm very grateful for. And they're very kind for doing this, but. I, I feel so terrible that this, I have forgotten how rupees work. Um, so this is one of the ways in which, yeah, context matters and not being in that context for a long time has left me without context in some ways, if that makes sense. In the Shantri Times flown, I want to ask you some absolutely uh, frivolous questions um, before we end this. What's your favorite place in Delhi? This is a hard question, but I think I'm going to go with, oh, this is a hard question. Okay, let's let's go with Delhi Hot. 
because it's such a great food, you know, great things to buy, great things to just hang out with friends and all of that. I'm going to pick Nirula's as well. Cannot place Nirula's. Okay, what's your favorite food? What's my favorite food, biryani? So, a fiction uh, piece that you recommend that everyone read? I think if everyone read the folk tales from their part of the world, that automatically would make us better human beings. You know, just going back to the fairy tales, to the first tales, stories from the places that people were born and raised. And because they contain the kind of wisdom that that was already enough and we have only added to it. We have not invented anything original. Those people did. So I think that, so there is not one piece of fiction. I think everyone just needs to go back and see the stories they come from because we all come from stories, whether our families, our cities, our our towns, countries, we just need to go back and find those stories and read them. And then we can start reading from rest of the world. Okay. What's your favorite nonfiction book? Hmm. This also changes so often. I think I'll one book that has had a lot of impact on me is by Sai Montgomery. She's a science writer. And uh the book is called The Soul of an Octopus. And this, uh, yeah, The Soul of an Octopus, A Surprising Exploration into the Wonder of Consciousness. I read this book back in 2015, and I can easily say it changed my life because I had never considered the octopus as anything beyond a wonderful addition in my soup or a dish, you know. But reading this book and realizing how much, it was a great reminder of how much I don't know. So it was an exercise in humility and about how incredibly intelligent octopuses are. The plural is not octopi, it's octopuses. It says in the first paragraph itself. And um, it was fascinating and it was a good reminder to not be anything really, because there is always so much more to learn, so much to be curious about and to keep educating oneself. So this book, The Soul of an Octopus. Okay. What's one book that you recommend to anyone to get a good idea of India? I'm going to recommend a few, if that's allowed. Yes. Okay. So the Mahabharat, in any version they can they can read that's accessible to them, even if it's, you know, Amatrakatha versions, those are great. If someone wants to take steps, I think that's, that's a place to start. Um, White Tiger is definitely another of my favorites. You just have, again, I would just recommend more folk tales to a lot of people. Yeah. Got it. Thank you so much, Anthony, for doing this. It's been an absolute pleasure to have this conversation. I have enjoyed it and I don't know where time has flown. I have half a dozen more questions on uh, uh, the notepad that I managed to uh, scribble on after I was done reading. Thank you so much. Thank you. This was such a fun conversation. I'm so glad we could do this. Thank you. Thank you for 
tuning in uh, to listen to India Booked. Do not forget uh, to check out Shantani's work on her website, but also do go and check out Amazon.com where you can look up Fire Girl from. Um, you must also check out The House of Nails. It's a chapbook. Uh, do read some of the pieces on her blog. They're absolutely compelling and will, uh, you know, make you chuckle and, and look at things in a interesting light, if I can call it that. Signing off for today. Do not forget to tune in next Saturday for another discussion. Do not forget to tune in to us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Ghana and HT Smartcast. Smartcast.